Church of God, today we continue our series, Light Out of Darkness, by turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and we're going to be reading all of chapter 4 and part of chapter 5. If you've been worshiping with us over the past few weeks, you know that this summer we're working through the book of 2 Corinthians, the second letter of Paul to the church in Corinth, and we've already seen the theme of this letter as Paul presents it in chapter 1, that God is bigger than our troubles in this world, that God is at work to do something great and glorious in spite of the troubles that we face. And through these first seven chapters of 2 Corinthians, we've seen that Paul is basically telling the story of what's happened to him over the past year since he, since he last communicated with the Corinthians. That, and, and he's telling the Corinthians about his journey from Ephesus to Troas to Macedonia and on down to Corinth. And throughout this journey, he's been troubled in his soul, troubled because of his relationship with the Corinthians, troubled because of the persecution that the churches in Macedonia are facing. And so he's waited to hear news from Titus. And when he does get news from Titus, he writes this letter. He writes the letter that we call 2 Corinthians. Sorry. And in this letter, we see that Paul has come to understand his troubles and and his suffering and the persecution of the church in a much greater light. He's come to understand his own suffering through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the image of the invisible God. And this is what Paul reminds the Corinthians of in this letter, that they don't put their trust in their own strength. They don't put their trust in Paul's strength They put their trust in the God who raised Jesus from the dead, the God who brings comfort in our sorrow, who brings joy in our suffering, who brings forgiveness in the face of sin, faithfulness in the face of change, life out of death. And this passage that we're going to read today really captures that in an awesome and powerful way. So let's turn now to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and 5, and as we approach God's word, let's ask him to bless us and to shape us as we read and meditate on his word. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit in our lives. We thank you for the gift of your word through which we come to know you and come to understand your purpose for us. And Lord, as we turn now to this letter of Paul to the church in Corinth, we pray that you would reveal to us that you are doing a new thing through the work of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would help us to understand that all of the troubles and all of the suffering that we currently face are achieving for us a greater glory that far outweighs them all. Lord, we pray that you would send us your Holy Spirit to comfort us, to shape us, and to mold us, and to nourish us through your word, and later on through your sacrament. We thank you and we praise you, O God, our Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. Second Corinthians chapter 4, starting at verse 1. <clears throat> Therefore, And I suppose we should stop there. 
because obviously this is building on something that comes before. Last Sunday, we read through chapters 2 and 3 of 2 Corinthians, and we saw there how Paul teaches about the new covenant. Paul has interrupted his explanation of his travels to defend his ministry against people who are uh, opposing him in the church in Corinth. Um, Paul's defending his ministry as an apostle. He's defending his ministry as someone who proclaims the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the main point of this new covenant, this new covenant that has begun in Christ, is not that God has changed the conditions of the covenant, but that he's changed the people of the covenant. We, we saw last Sunday how God has sent his Holy Spirit to transform people, to transform the people who he calls his own, to transform the people of his covenant so that they can live lives of holiness before God. So that's the ministry that Paul's talking about here. That's the therefore. Because we have this ministry, the ministry of the new covenant, the ministry of the covenant of God that transforms us and makes us new and makes us holy. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, remember the veil last time he talked about the veil covering people's hearts so that they couldn't understand the covenant of God. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Christ so that the life of Christ may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. 
Now, we know that if, our earthly, if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. sisters and brothers in our Lord Jesus Christ, one of the things that this sermon series has already taught me is the importance of reading and preaching our way through the Bible, through books of the Bible, allowing God to use Scripture to shape us the way that He intended rather than us shaping Scripture the way, the, the way that we intend, rather than us shaping Scripture to say what we want to say. A lot of times there's this real temptation to take what Scripture says and and to shape it, to say what we want. And so we pick a theme or a topic of what we want to say, and and we pick and choose parts of the Bible that say what we want to say, that support our view. And there's certainly a need for that sometimes, don't get me wrong. Over the past year, we've preached several topical sermon series. We've preached on relationships, we've preached on stewardship, we've preached on what it means to be the church. And what we try to do in those series is that, is that we try to take a big picture look at what the Bible's saying about those topics. But inevitably, there's a risk. We can't preach on everything, every passage that the Bible talks about relationships we, or, or managing our money or, or what it means to be the church. And so we end up emphasizing certain passages and skipping over others. And that's why it's so important on a regular basis to read through a book of Scripture together, to read through a part of the Bible together, because when we walk through a book of the Bible, we're confronted with a very different way of thinking than our own. When we walk through a book of the Bible, we start to see where the Bible shouts and where it whispers, where it speaks boldly and where it's silent. And we start to see the big themes of the story of Scripture taking shape, and that shapes us. We're starting to see that in this letter of Paul to the Corinthians. We're starting to see how Paul builds these ideas and challenges the people who he's writing to. We're starting to see how Paul thinks very differently than we do sometimes. And in this passage, Paul emphasizes a lot of the same themes that we've been looking at throughout the letter. We've seen how Paul consistently points away from himself and to the power of God, the power of God working through the gospel, the power of the God who raised Jesus from the dead, the God who brings light out of darkness. 
We've seen how Paul consistently points to the unity of the whole of the, of the whole church in Jesus Christ, the body of Christ united in Jesus, our head. And so we see that just as Jesus suffered, we suffer, and that just as Jesus was raised from the dead, we participate in the resurrection both through renewal of our souls now and the resurrection of our bodies when Jesus comes again. We've seen how Paul emphasizes that the power of God is made perfect in suffering, perfect in weakness, so that even though Paul is going through a difficult time, even though he's experienced anxiety and depression and conflict and opposition and persecution, God works through his suffering to bring light out of darkness, life out of death. And so Paul's not ashamed of his suffering. He's not afraid to talk about the trials and the, and the troubles that he's faced, but he knows that the Corinthians are going to be asking questions about it. He's being very open with the Corinthians about how the past year hasn't gone so well for him. And he knows that they're going to ask questions about this. They're going to ask questions about him. This Paul guy, why is he so unimpressive? Why is he so weak? Why is he always facing trouble at every turn in everything that he does? And the troubles that Paul's facing are causing some of the Corinthians to question whether God has really blessed him with the ministry of the new covenant. Paul is facing so much trouble, maybe God's not really in his corner. Or worse, if Paul is going through all this suffering, maybe the gospel really isn't that powerful after all. And this is a sentiment that we can relate to, I think. It's easy for us to think that when things aren't going well for, for ourselves or for others, that this is a sign that God has left us, that God has abandoned us. It's funny to me when I read through the ministry reports to Synod. Yeah, I read through the ministry reports to Synod. I know. But the thing that strikes me about these reports is how positive they always are. They almost all start out by saying, we have much to praise God for in this past year, or God has richly blessed us over the past year. And you look at reports from places like Calvin College or Redeemer University, two places that have seen very difficult troubles over the past year, significant challenges, and they start out so positively. And even the challenges that they have faced are twisted to be positive, like this is just an opportunity for us to work harder and do better. It's like we're afraid of admitting that things haven't gone well. Like we're afraid that people will think that if, if we're not having a successful year, that God has abandoned us. And we can understand why, I think. It's difficult for us in our culture to think about God working through suffering. We don't think of suffering as redemptive. We think of suffering as a sign of God's curse. And so we say things like, keep your chin up. Why the long face? You know, the best way to keep positive is to keep a positive attitude is to always be positive. The key to a happy life is to be happy. Thanks, John Tesh. <laughs> Imagine if we wrote our agency reports to Synod the way that Paul does, out of anguish of soul and deep suffering. You guys remember back in chapter 1, Paul writes, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the hardships we suffered while in the province of Asia. 
We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, even in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Imagine if our denominational reports, instead of saying things are so awesome, we have been richly blessed this past year. Don't look at our enrollment numbers. They don't really reflect the positive attitude we have toward our long-term strategic plan. Imagine if the reports from our educational institutions started out this way. They said, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles that we've faced over the past academic year. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of the possibility of a future for this institution. Indeed, some of us who have been devoted to this university for decades felt maybe it was time to cut back and downsize. But this happened so that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Oh, how different that would be. Rather than trusting in our own strategies for growth, we rely on God. Rather than trusting our own models and our own methods for success, we rely on God. But is that how we'd really see it? Maybe we'd read these honest, sometimes brutal reports and we'd say, gee, that's depressing. I wonder if God is really working there. I wonder if the Spirit is at work in that institution. Certainly doesn't look like it. They're going through a tough time. Maybe God isn't in their corner. And that's what's happening between the Corinthians and Paul. Paul is going through so much trouble. Maybe God isn't really on his side. Maybe the gospel really isn't all that powerful after all. Oh, but no, Paul says. Oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. You've got it all wrong. Stop looking at me and start looking at the power of God. I'm not impressive, Paul says. But that's not the point. The gospel is impressive. The gospel is powerful. The gospel is changing lives. The gospel is impressive. Paul is not. The Corinthians need to stop looking at Paul's outward appearance and start looking at the power of the gospel. And Paul says that people who can't see that are blinded by the God of this present age. Paul says that they've had the wool pulled over their eyes by the prince of darkness, by Satan himself. And if they can't see that the power of God is impressive, even though Paul is unimpressive, it's because Satan has distracted them with Paul's unimpressive figure. He's veiled their minds, just like we talked about last Sunday. But in Christ, of course, God has the power to pierce through this veil and shine the light of the glory of God into their lives through Christ. And this is very personal for Paul. Because this is his story. Paul was blinded by the God of this age. Satan had put Paul on a path so destructive, so dangerous, that he was persecuting the church of God. Before Paul became a Christian, he was called Saul. 
And he was a very important person in Jerusalem. He was a Pharisee. And not just that, he was a Pharisee who studied under Gamaliel, who we know from history was one of the most well-respected Jewish rabbis at the time of Jesus. Maybe even the leader of the Sanhedrin, the ruling Jewish body in Jerusalem. So Paul studied under someone who some people in history tell us was the leader of the Jewish body in Jerusalem. And very soon after the rise of the Christian church, very soon after the life of Jesus, Saul decided that it was his mission to eliminate this rebellious Jewish sect. And so he traveled all over the Middle East, arresting Christians and sending them to Jerusalem to be tried. But one day, on his way to Damascus, an important center of early Christianity, with a letter from the high priest in his hand giving him unlimited authority to arrest anyone who claimed to be a follower of Jesus. A light from the heavens flashed all around him. He fell to the ground, and he heard a voice from the heavens saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he responded, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you have been persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And from that day on, Saul's life was radically changed. He was transformed from an agent of Satan to a minister of the new covenant. He was changed from someone who breathed murderous threats against the Lord's disciples to someone whose lips could not stop proclaiming the gospel of the new covenant in Jesus Christ. He was converted from someone who persecuted Christians to a Christian who faced persecution. And this is what Paul is talking about here when he says that God made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Because Paul has seen the resurrected Jesus. He has heard his voice. He knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that his promises are true. The light of God broke through the veil that the devil had used to shroud his mind. And he was transformed. And that light, that light of God breaking into Paul's own personal darkness, Paul says, that's the new creation at work. All of this creational imagery, this creational language, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, Paul is pointing to something fundamental here, something that shapes everything for him, shapes the way he sees the world, transforms the way he thinks, and we'll talk about this more next Sunday when we talk about the ministry of reconciliation. But what Paul is saying here is that the new creation has already begun in Christ. The new creation has already begun in Christ, and that transforms everything. It transforms the way we see things. It transforms the way we understand things. It transforms the way we live. This new creation 
The new creation that God promises to his people over and over again in the Old Testament, when the lion will lie down with the lamb and justice will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea and God will send his spirit to live in his people and all the nations of the earth will bring their praises to God. That is the work that Jesus came to do, Paul says. That is the work that Jesus has begun. Jesus came to establish the new creation. He came to bring together heaven and earth In him, the kingdom of God has broken through the veil of the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of the God of this age. In Jesus, God has started the work of making all things new. And that, Paul says, transforms us. It transforms everything. It transforms the way we see things. The Corinthians look at Paul and they see that he's not that impressive. They see that he's weak. They see that he's constantly facing trouble at every turn, threatened by death everywhere he goes. And Paul says, you're only seeing half the picture. You're only seeing the visible half. But you need to fix your eyes on what is unseen. And we're like, okay, that's ridiculous. The whole point of something being unseen is that you can't fix your eyes on it. That's what it means, Paul. What are you talking about here? Paul's talking about the future. And Paul's saying that the future is something that we can fix our eyes on because God has shown it to us. God has revealed it to us in Jesus. And maybe this helps us to understand. Because we, too, we do talk like that when we talk about the future. People are always talking about their vision for the future. And that's what a vision is. It's sight. Vision is sight. What's a strategic plan but a vision for the future? What's a long-term budget but a vision for the future? What's a building expansion plan but a vision for the future? We can and we do see the future. And then we draw it up in charts and graphs and blueprints and synodical reports and PowerPoint presentations. But God gives us his vision for the future. A vision for a future that's glorious. A vision for a future that far outweighs the light and momentary troubles that we now face. A vision for the future that looks like Jesus. And Paul says this is the lens through which we ought to view the world. This vision is the lens through which we should interpret our current troubles this vision of resurrected bodies, this vision of a new creation, this vision of mortality being swallowed up by life, this vision of all of us coming before the judgment seat of Christ in our new resurrected bodies to finally receive our reward. This is the story we tell Paul says, and it's a story that he loves to tell. The story of God working resurrection in us. The Corinthians look at him and they see weakness, they see frailty, they see suffering. Oh, but Paul says, what you're seeing in me is not weakness. We are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. What you're seeing in me is not weakness. What you're seeing in me is the death of Christ. And I know that it leads to resurrection because I've seen him. 
He came to me on the road to Damascus. He tore through the veil that clouded my mind, shining his light through my whole being, and his resurrection is at work in me. And so we don't get discouraged, even if on the outside our humanity is decaying, on the inside we are being made new day after day. The resurrection is already now at work in our lives through the Holy Spirit, even in this present suffering, even in this present hardship, even in our light and momentary troubles. God is working in us to achieve for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ with our glorified, resurrected bodies and wait to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. There's so much more that we could say, but we do have to do Lord's Supper today. There's so much more that we could say. We could talk about Psalm 116. We could talk about what it means that the Spirit's a deposit. We could talk about the nature of our glorified bodies. But we'll leave it there for now. That God in Christ has begun the work of the new creation. And that transforms everything. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, O Lord, our God and our King, we thank you that you have begun the work of new creation in Jesus Christ. We thank you that you've taken away our sins and made us pure. We thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit in our hearts. We thank you that inwardly we are being made new day after day after day. And Lord, we pray that you would come again so that the work that is being done on the inside may be done on the outside. The work that is being done in part will be done in full. Lord, we long for the day when we will be able to look at you face to face with resurrected eyes. We long for the day when we will be able to hear your voice with resurrected ears. We long for the day when we will be able to live in the new creation that you have made. And until that day we wait and we work, even if on the inside we groan, longing for your grace, longing for your resurrection to take place fully. Lord, we pray that you would bless us so that we can be a blessing to you. We pray that you would nourish us so that we may be fed, so that we can go on and bring glory to your name. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray.